I think that as as Paul Gillia suggests, um, over time, rioting becomes and, and just mob violence becomes more violent. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a whole literature. There's a lot of historians who've written about the fact that there's kind of a ritualistic element to early, early American protests. So, you know, like pre-revolutionary protests that people would expect a bunch of people to go into the street and be angry about something and then do something very targeted. You right. know, like, well, we're mad at a press, so we shall go and hurt the press. Mm-hmm. And then parade around a little bit and, you know, maybe burn an effigy and then go home. What strikes me about both of the protests that Gilia talked about is that they quite literally involve life and death matters. In the case of smallpox, these people understood that they could die from this disease. In the case of 1812, you're talking about being willing to sacrifice one's life to go to war in what became known as the War of 1812. And I have to feel that the matter being protested has something to do with the degree of violence unleashed. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I I think... um, an example of that would be one of the more famous acts of protest during the Revolutionary Period, which is the what we now call the Boston Tea Party, mm. which was a protest against attacks on tea. And a group of people in Boston decided that they would go onto these ships where tea was waiting to be unloaded into the harbor and that they would destroy this tea and make a statement about the fact that they were not going to pay this tax. So they were making – I mean it was a strong statement and, and they were, you know – Essentially, a t- it was strong tea. <laughs> well, oh. it became kind of weak tea <laughs> in the in the water in the ocean. It was wimpy tea, but but the point is that was a really targeted, controlled act of protest. So that people went on board. They really didn't want to damage the ships. They really didn't want to do any harm to anything. You know, Are you they, su- supposedly they swept the decks of the ships when oh they were done, God. so they didn't leave a mess behind, right? And I think they they were worried about hurting the locks, the padlocks to the hatches where the it's a strong statement and it's a dangerous right. act. But they just want to register protests. They actually don't want to do damage. But and it's not Brian, a life and it's not a life and death exactly, matter. Ultimately, exactly. it's it's an economic matter, which is important. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So there's risk involved, and I guess I don't want to suggest that early protests are quaint and that somehow they then become violent. Um, just I think clean. it's actually. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but anyway, I guess I I do think. The, the larger point here seems to me that, yes, I do think rioting and violence uh, of this sort becomes more violent. But in saying that, I don't want to suggest that the earlier violence uh, is quaint. I think another example of that, um, and this will be a true confession from an early American historian, you know, you read forever about the practice of tarring and feathering. Mm, but sure. when you actually get down to the nitty-gritty details of what that is, it's brutal. It's mm. nasty. It's hot t- tar being poured onto people and then feathers being put on top. But that hot tar often takes skin with it. You know, sure. I mean, it, it, it's a nasty, horrible, burning, disfiguring thing. So, again, as much as you could say, well, that's very ritualistic, you know, tarring and feathering, um, it's brutal too. It's pretty violent. So I, I guess, yeah, very violent. So there's like a spectrum maybe. And as Brian suggested, maybe it really is pegged in part to the nature of what's being protested and the groupness of it. So we're going to have to take a quick break. But when we get back, we're going to talk about how Southern women waged their own war during the Civil War. And I bet you, dollars to donuts, they did not clean up after themselves. (laughs) Okay, Brian, I want you to do something for me. I want you to close your eyes. Both of them? Both eyes. All right, the second one just shut. 
Thank you very much. Okay. Now, I want you to think of somebody who you really care about. All right. And now I want you to tell them something very personal right here on the air. I want you to tell them a podcast that you just know they would absolutely love. Oh, that's such a setup, Joanne. Backstory, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. But I also love a few more. I love Amicus. I love Slate's Political Gab Fest. Uh, I confess, I love Serial, and I love This American Life. There are so many good shows out there. I mean, that's just a great example. And that's why all this month, we're going to be asking you to tell a friend about Backstory or any other podcast that you love, because we all know people who just don't get podcasts or how to find one that they like or even just how to find them at all. I have trouble finding a friend. <laughs> oh, Brian. <laughs> I'm your friend. Thank you, Joanne. And it's, it's easy when you have friends. You could tell them about your favorite podcast in person, or you could tell us about what you'd recommend to them by going on social media and using the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks for spreading the word. I'm typing as you speak, Joanne. <laughs> Good. So now let's go to the spring of 1863. You have white women across the Confederacy taking to the streets, but they're not protesting against the Civil War. They're not protesting against slavery. They just don't have enough to eat. Last summer, our co-host Ed Ayers explored this unexpected protest for a show we did on women in politics. We'll let Ed do his thing from here. Here's what happened. By the second winter of the Civil War, white women throughout the Confederacy could not feed their families because most able-bodied white males were in the Confederate Army. There's not even teenage sons left on these farms. This is historian Stephanie McCurry. She says that at first, these soldiers' wives wrote letters to state and local officials begging for help. McCurry discovered hundreds of these letters. And here's one written by a North Carolina woman in 1863. We have seen the time when we could call our little children and our husbands to our tables and have a plenty. And now we have become beggars and starvers and no way to help ourselves. And then she said that she and the other soldiers' wives could not do enough field work to get subsistence from the land. Sometimes in the same letter, it would start out like as a begging letter, and then it would turn angry in the middle. We will have bread or blood. And they meant it. In March and April of 1863, mobs of white women broke into stores and government warehouses across the Confederacy to steal food in what were known as bread riots. There were more than a dozen of these uprisings from Mobile, Alabama and Salisbury, North Carolina, up to Petersburg, Virginia. The biggest riot took place in the capital of the Confederacy, in Richmond, Virginia, on April 2, 1863. Around 9 o'clock in the morning, a clerk in the government office John Jones, who left this amazing diary, describes being pulled to his window by the sound of these women, about 300 women, with another crowd of men and boys behind them. And he said, totaling about a thousand people, they converge on particular merchants and they demand, they sort of interview the merchants. They say, how much is bacon a pound? And the guy says, you know, well, it's $1.20 a pound. And they say, how can women in our position pay $1.20 a pound for bacon? You need to give it to us at government prices. And he says no. And then they break down the door. And they begin this basically four-hour riot in the warehouse district or the wharf district of Richmond. And 
They threw men off of wagons in the street to commandeer <laughs> the wagons to haul yeah. off the loot. They took uh, seized a huge amount of stuff. They well, seized, you know, people um, may know that Richmond's the capital of the Confederacy. You would have thought they would have had some soldiers there or something. Why did they let this rage for four hours? Why didn't they try to to nip this in the bud? Uh, they did eventually put this thing down by force. They called out troops to put down this riot, and then a lot of them were arrested. Confederate officials were puzzled by how well organized these riots seem. The leading Richmond newspaper offered the standard explanation. Men did it, or even Yankee conspirators had put these women up to it. But in Richmond, the trial records provided some clues to the contrary. When they get into court, they find out that this is not the work of men or Yankee operatives. It's the work of a, a one woman, Mary Jackson, a huckster and meat at the city market. And the night before... The riot, she called a meeting of 300 town and country women, some of them from as far as 11 miles away, people she had recruited. And they had a meeting in the Belvedere Baptist Church. She got up into the pulpit. So you know how acceptable that was. And she kind of rallied her troops and she told these women that they were going to organize themselves. They were going to behave peaceably. They were going to explain their reasons, but that they were to come tomorrow and they were to leave their children at home That is to say, we're going to have a riot, you'll need a babysitter, (laughs) and come armed. More than 70 Richmond rioters were put on trial. Many were fined or sent to prison, although Mary Jackson, the ringleader, was not. Despite the clampdown in Richmond, the riots had a positive outcome for women. They forced officials throughout the Confederacy to pay attention to the needs of civilians, not just soldiers. First of all, they they started to return food from the army to the worst hit counties. So they gave back food that they had seized by the tax and kind. They created food relief programs. The the welfare policy in the Confederacy expanded enormously. And um, they allowed county relief officials to buy corn at government prices, which is what the women had wanted in the first place. So I think that if people were imagining places in the United States where women were likely to be depoliticized. It might have been in the Confederacy, you know, Southern ladyhood and all that sort of stuff. And yet we have here one of the most visible and in some ways effective rebellions of women in 19th century America coming out of the South. You think it's mainly a condition that they were put in such conditions that they had no choice? Did did this have a Southern accent in any way? Absolutely. Um, This is desperation. But, you know, people can just lie down and die in moments of desperation. And these women got up and fought back and um, they fought back and see sort of forced officials to answer to them like you took our men. You promised to protect us. Now you better act. So the fact that these women who have no legs to stand on, no ground on which they can think of themselves as citizens of the nation with rights that are being violated, none of that is within their grasp. And yet still, when the government forces them into this really intimate relationship with them, it starts to take their husbands and their sons and their food. People respond. Yeah, what that suggests is that this grassroots rebellion had very direct results in what people do think of as politics and the, the public policy of the state. So that's, I mean, it's hard to imagine they could have gotten those results in any other way <laughs> rather than uh, threatening to burn things down. So... It's just so fascinating, I think, and so moving in a human sense to recognize that when we go into the archives and dig around, we find these unexpected things. Exactly. And 
One of them is that no matter how many times we're told and the history we read is really men do this and men do that. I mean, really, it's quite outrageous. You get to the 21st century and you can still basically write a history of the world without any women in it. It infuriates me. There's lots of evidence of how women made history. And I think this is a great example of that. It's like a rip in history. And that's I think why historians write so much about wars, because wars create conditions of rapid change. They also leave records. That was Columbia University historian Stephanie McCurry, interviewed by our own Ed Ayers. So so the thing that jumps out to me right off the bat from Professor McCurry's remarks is this notion of having intimate relationships with the government, right? This idea that the government and you have a kind of bond. And if that bond is violated, then violence can be the result. Uh, You know, we're talking about a female protest, right? And part of the power of that is the fact that they're women. And I believe that uh, Professor McCurry in the interview talks about, in a way, this is making a new politics. It's it's people who have been excluded who mm-hmm. are now asserting, in a way, that they are part of the system. But when I listened to that piece, what it made me think of was um, a complaint that uh, Thomas Jefferson made about France right. and about women in France during their revolutionary moment. And what upset him was he said that women at that moment— They weren't part of the official system, and so they were able to go between the lines and behind the scenes and get to people in power and assert demands and make claims in a way that no one could put their finger on. Now, in this case, this is in a sense the opposite. These people are are putting themselves in the middle of the public sphere and launching a protest, but I wonder the degree to which the fact that they were women, how that shaped the perception of what was going on. So, yeah, this this notion that there are legitimate expectations that as a citizen, as a woman, as a you know child, that one can expect the kind of care that one can expect, um, you know, I think is, is really powerful. And I think it, it goes a long way to explaining the nature of protests, regardless of what period you're talking about, right? If, if, if you believe you struck some kind of social contract with the government and that was effectively violated, you know, it can lead to some pretty um, explosive consequences. You know, the one thing that... Revolutionary. Revolutionary, (laughs) exactly. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, I'm always amazed, for instance, when you think about these kind of, you know, riots or rebellions, um, you know, there's always a kind of, again, intimate quality. There's almost a surgical quality to them. Like the women in Richmond, they know exactly where, where to strike when the bread is not provided, right? You think about cities that were, you know, burning during the 1960s or even race riots during the 1920s. The merchants who were charging you too much money for that secondhand TV, that store had to burn, right? In, in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, if there was a black employer with a white employee, that employee during the race riot there would go to the black boss and try to burn his business down, right, as an expression of a relationship that had simply gone awry. And so it's a powerful example of these things that seem really impersonal, right, these riots, these explosions that at the street level and at the personal level are profoundly intimate. And it's a reminder that although on the one hand, protests can and probably are meant to often have a broad sweeping impact, that they're also meant to and do have a local and a personal impact as well that's part of their power. I think that's right. We're going to take a short break. When we get back, how media coverage can help or hurt protests. A word from today's sponsor. Sponsor. 